2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. This episode is another new one for us. You're going to see that we'll be experimenting with form over the coming months. Like the recent episode with Cory Doctorow, we have a guest host. This time it is Molls Sauter, an assistant professor of information studies at the University of Maryland. You'll learn more about Molls and their cool work at the beginning of the episode. But the new new thing is that this is the first live stream that peoples and things took part in this episode is from an event that was held by red may a months-long spree of red arts red theory and red politics based in seattle washington that plots ways forward to a world beyond capitalism we are very grateful to all the red may organizers for asking people and things to take part in the event and for allowing us to republish the recording as this episode Now the subject of this episode is Malcolm Harris's book Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Harris is an interesting guy. I think he's sometimes talked about as a kind of voice of a generation or something like that. He is the author of, from 2017, Kids These Days, Human Capital in the Making of Millennials, and from 2020, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. Then Harris did something very bizarre. He wrote a big 720-page history of Palo Alto. And I think it's pretty interesting. Palo Alto is a big history of a single U.S. city. It examines how the place developed and how it fits into larger trends and processes of capitalist production and change. Harris, who grew up in the area, finds Palo Alto to be a place haunted by its many dark legacies. In this conversation, Malls and I chat with Malcolm about what led him to write a dad book about Palo Alto, and our conversation takes us to so many different places. I hope you have a good time listening to it. I certainly had a good time doing it, and thanks again to the Red May folks, and hey, get excited! if I wanted to get into conversation with Malcolm. And Malcolm and I had already been talking back in the day about uh, him coming on my podcast, Peoples and Things. And Kyle also asked who else we should bring to the table. And I instantly thought of Malls Solder, And I just wanted to kind of like set up the conversation a little bit by introducing Malls. So Malls is a, a really cool person. They organized a conference back in grad school called <laughs> Innovation and its Discontents which was brought together all kinds of cool people thinking about the, the notion of innovation and, you know, it's others, I guess. You know, it's, it's people were pushing back. Then at some point, Malz and I talked because they were going to write their dissertation on the notion of disruption and how it had taken over Silicon Valley and all these mm-hmm. places. And they went, ended up going in a different direction.
0: Totally, uh, totally then, different. Very different. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but we reconnected recently in Detroit at the Business History Conference, a great conference people should go to if they're into that kind of thing. And then we decided to put together a panel for the history of uh, the Society for the History of Technology, which you should definitely take because it's great. And um, and, you know, Malls, while we were together in Detroit, we were just talking about work and what we're reading and stuff. And they had just read Malcolm's book. And then you guys have met in other contexts. So, Malls, can you tell people a little bit about your current book project? Because it is connected to this story in lots of ways. And I just thought it would be great for people to know about.
0: Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So the current book project is based on what the dissertation ended up being, uh, which is the role of East Coast high finance in the development of the modern venture capitalist and specifically in the development of modern venture capital policy. And I'm focusing pretty much on a little, a small group of people uh, based in D.C. and New York, who were involved in a small business administration task force uh, in 19, you know, you get very specific in micro in 1976 through 1977, who basically as like they're led by William J. Casey, who's mostly well known for being the head of the CAA during Iran-Contra. But <laughs> what basically what, what very few people know about Casey was that before he was part of the CAA, he was a the hu- very sort of significant federal... A finance appointee and he was the head of this of the sec he was the head of the export import bank he did a lot of work in federal finance policy and part of the reason why he did that was sort of his his very interesting history of in business publishing he made all his money in business publishing uh sort of pre-world war ii and then was part of the oss in world war ii and then basically spent his entire career trying to get back into being a spy because he thought being a spy (laughs) was the best thing in the world but he kept being pushed into these finance roles and he is the head of this task force for the at the Small Business Administration to address the crisis in small business funding. Uh, whether or not there is a crisis in small business funding is a, is a valid question at the time. Uh, and they end up creating what is essentially the policy framework that gives us the modern venture capitalist down to like, cracking open pensions to make pensions available for high risk investment, changing some very significant SEC rules at a very specific time, uh, changing some other different sort of taxation structures and making what is known Currently, as the sort of limited partnership, institutionally supported venture capital firm, the dominant firm structure, sort of making that firm structure possible and then helping it to dominate the space. And so that's what the next book project is about. Uh, I've been I love it. Yeah. I've what been working on it for fun? a while. It's we're <laughs> shopping it to publishers now. Let's well, hopefully, next what is it, 18 months academic timelines? We'll see how it goes.
2: Right on. Well, Malcolm. Um, My buddy, Aaron Gordon, uh, a a writer at Motherboard, and I are into the Oxford history of the US series, like cause we love dad history books that are like seven pages long. And like, I'm into that kind of thing. And so you, dude, you wrote a dad history book about Palo Alto, right?
1: So- Unintentionally. (laughs) (laughs) Unintentionally. Unaccidentally.
2: So when you, well, I want to hear about the, tell me, let's start there. How was it an accident?
1: Well, so, you know, everyone, uh, every young man just wants to be Joan Didion and then you end up uh, <laughs> being dad history. No. Uh, <clears throat>
0: I told my editor, they're like, what kind of book do you want to write? I'm like, I want, to, I want to write a smart dad history book. And they're like, is that a thing? And I'm like, yes, it is a thing. So I'm glad you're here blazing the trail for dad history books. I
1: should have. Well, I wish I'd pitched it that way because it definitely was not pitched at this length or even this form. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure if they would have bought it because I don't. Uh, Unlike uh, you two,
2: uh, Uh lovely,
1: talented, hardworking people, (laughs) I don't have any graduate degrees. Uh, Uh And to to access the sort of authority to write this kind of straight Mm -hmm. history, it helps if you have some kind of personal connection that you're going to weave through. And then you can say, oh, I'm a good writer. So let me write this history because it's going to be like, you know autobiographical or whatever. I I read Zabald or Didion, you know, I'm going to do it like that. And a lot of people are a fair number, I think, of writers in my cohort have taken that sort of institutional situation that's maybe not great, to be honest, right? And you look back at like the mid 20th century, you could be a 27 year old who's just like got a mouth and you can have the authority to write whatever you want. And a lot of our like very important texts come out of people just like talking shit like that. Uh, a little different now. Uh, but when I tried to do that kind of writing, it didn't really work. And I did a fair amount of it. Uh, and so I have the like the files on my computer somewhere where I'm weaving my personal childhood experience, you know, eight through 18 that I spent in Palo Alto through this story of this place. Right. Um, and a, a few things happened, which is that, yeah, I didn't like doing it. I don't think I'm very good at it. I don't think it read very well, it, Yeah, like kind of absurd, almost the like juxtaposition of this history that I was doing. Uh, and I was finding a lot more history, straight history stuff that I wanted to tell than I expected to in the first place. And mm-hmm. so when I wrote my first chapter out d- doing a straight history chapter, it was three times as long as I planned it to be. And I had this really, you know, dense outline that I was committed to. To doing this whole story straight through and not taking any sort of metaphorical jumps through the decades, but actually doing it, uh, you know, decade by decade, um, that it was just all going to be three times as long as I originally planned, even without any personal uh, <laughs> yeah. stuff. So luckily, uh, I have a great editor at Little Brown, and she agreed with me that it wasn't the other stuff wasn't as good and that the hit straight history was working better. And she let me like, I still can't believe that they published it at the size that they did. Like (laughs) it's, it's, it's totally surreal. This just like as an object to me, it's totally surreal.
2: If you're explaining it to a stranger, what do you say it's about and what were you, what were you trying to do with this thing?
1: Um, well, it depends, like the context in which I meet the stranger, right? Yeah. Uh, but mostly, if a, a totally, you know, Rawlsian uh, blank slate person uh, that I were to encounter, I tell them that it's a it's a straight history all the way through of Palo Alto, California, from its founding in the eighteen seventies and pre-founding in the Gold Rush, through to the present day, and that no one had tried to write this book before. And that's a very, then that's like the dad history straight up, like it's 1870s to now, the history of uh, America and the world development and the development of the capitalist world system through this place, Palo Alto, California, step by step through the whole thing from then till now. And it was this part, the way I came to think about it was that uh, it's part of this sort of rewriting of American history that we've been doing lately a re-examination of the post reconstruction era and the sort of second American history that starts then. Uh, and California doesn't, hasn't been told as part of that history. We look to, you know, this continue in terms of this, uh, model of the relationships between the South and the North yeah. into the late 19th into the 20th century. Uh, but California, you know, Rushes onto the scene in that in that period uh, and makes an immediate difference. And so much of it clicks for me when you see that, like, you know, California teams up with the South to end Reconstruction to end the occupation of the South in order to pass the Chinese Exclusion Act, and that these like racialist logics uh, and that were so tied up with the labor markets and labor costs we're mutually reinforcing, you know, from this moment at the end of the 19th century that is constitutive and foundational uh, for this like second American history. Somebody ought to go into that stuff, depending on like, you know, yeah, yeah, read, yeah. read the 1619 project, or, you know, yeah, yeah. You, know like, you compare it, you do comps, uh, you're selling it to your editor versus selling it to an editor.
2: Miles was picking up on this haunting uh, theme in our conversation. Miles, why don't, why don't you kick it over there?
0: yeah so I really love the beginning of the book where you're talking about the haunting and how Palo Alto is haunted California is haunted uh by these crimes of the past that can not only can they never be atoned for but also they are always constantly present um but there isn't an, another sort of way of thinking about haunting and sort of hauntology as you're haunted by lost futures, you're haunted by the things that you cannot have that have been foreclosed to you because of choices that have been made in the past. And sort of like both this is a thing that the region is haunted by this, the people are haunted by this, the children that you talk about are haunted by this, the fucking horses are haunted by this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how the foreclosure of futures or maybe the over-defining of futures and and like how futures are foreclosed through this over-defining of potential works in this text?
1: Yeah, there are some there are some interesting moments where you see sort of attempts at different things throughout the history. Whether that's you know the Halcyon Commune in California, where you've got like you know poets and engineers and immigrants uh, and agriculturalists working together under like a pretty sort of utopian model, uh, and there are lots of projects like that in California. Um, And a bunch that I didn't know, like so many early, you know, really at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century political projects in California and Palo Alto. You know, like I knew there was a new left presence. uh, But before that, I didn't know much about like the old left and even like, you know, the first international. Right. (laughs) Like like, I. and a figure like Har Dayal, who leads this uprising of uh, East Indian agricultural workers on the west coast of North America, as an army that they are anti-colonial army that they you know put on boats and lead on a struggle against the British occupation and is, you know, foundational to the history of anti-colonial struggle in the 20th century in India. I had no idea like Palo Alto played a role in that and that they were like organizing out of like a shack near the railroad and that they like stanford got sort of tricked into providing the auspices for this kind of thing the radical anarchist communist revolutionary society like the coolest name that you could think of right? <laughs> um you know real like crazy folks uh, doing really exciting things, you know, and, and founding, you know, being involved in the foundations of the first communist parties around the world. And it's really like the international Pacific left that we're coming to understand a little bit more. Um, yeah. I think that the the political history of California is haunted by that, but maybe not in, in such a bad way. I don't know. I think like that, that the left-wing mm-hmm. tradition of California communism is something that I think we need to like develop further. And if people just started noticing now, I think, which makes sense because it's Cal- Alta California, Anglo-American Alta California is only 200 years old, not even. Mm-hmm. And so now we're looking like at the political traditions that are coming out of that history. Um, I think there's gonna be more, we're gonna come to understand them more and they're gonna be more important as we go on. So. Uh, are we haunted by that? You know, I know what you're talking about with the, you know, the failure of uh, the Soviet Union sort of haunts uh, the left and I guess is the, the thesis. But California was really an exception to that experience in a lot of ways, like the California, the American Communist Party in general, their hands are not very bloody, honestly, with the crimes of 20th century communism, partly because they just weren't very powerful. So they just like worked for civil rights a lot of the time and like <laughs> can generally take a lot of pride in what they did. Uh, and the California communists were even on the far end of that. So like when the, the communists kicked out the Japanese because they were, didn't wanna like look bad like they were collaborating with the Japanese, the California communists said, yeah, okay, we're still gonna let all the Jap- our Japanese members contribute the same way that they were going to. And like, they were even like more insulated from the sort of top down party rule um, which I think like is part of the reason we have this left-wing communist tradition and perspective that continues out of California and some and that's uh, exemplified in someone like Mike Davis and his work mm-hmm. uh, that seems that like seems strange in the history of, of like left-wing thought. But then when you put it in the history of California, left-wing thought, he's like right in there. It makes total sense. And he's done so much of that work explaining sort of himself and where he comes from. Um, and I definitely see this work as aspiring to be in that tradition and help uh, cast more light on that history.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense.
1: Molly, let's keep going. Uh,
0: well, so I think a lot about venture, obviously, um, and sort of what venture is and the processes of venture. And one thing I've been thinking about recently is like, what is valuation? Like, what is ev- What is any? Ev- what is evaluation? How do we? How do you work evaluation? And what is its purpose? And one of the things that I've been thinking about sort of in conversation with this text is valuation is a process of dragging the future into the present and draining it and like hollowing it out and like mm-hmm. making exploitative use of the future now. Yeah. Um. And that I see happening in like at every level of this text is that the Palo Alto system is about nailing down potential and like materializing it mm-hmm. in a way that is deeply sort of creepy once you start to think about it and like it has that weird sort of bad magic on top of it where it's like you're taking something that is supposed to be airy and in and like in the future and something that is aspirational and something that is a thing that y- you go out and you experience and you are instead concretizing it in the present and there's something deeply weird and bad ma- and like bad magic about that um getting
2: and getting so something out of it right sorry getting something out of it
0: Getting something out of it in a way that steals something from someone later, yeah, because that's that's what the that's what it is. It's about taking the value from the future and spending uh, it now.
1: But I want to. Uh, I think it was helpful for me. and uh, I think we got we got over twenty minutes in before I say the name Herbert Hoover, which Herbert I think is Hoover good. is here. Uh, he's you know that's his music. Uh, it was helpful to me to understand the capitalist's perspective. Uh, to see how it's supposed to work in their thinking, how this mechanism, this finance mechanism, is supposed to work in their thinking, because they are thinking about, you know, you take value from the future and you bring it to today, but it's not supposed to steal it from the future, right? It's mm-hmm. supposed to be like a stepping stool so that you, you know, fake it till you make it. It's supposed and then, to sort of
0: multiply it. It's supposed yeah. to be more.
1: Is that if you can count on it being there in two years, you can borrow against it now and get you to that two years, mm-hmm. right? You can like you can tell a story about where you're going that helps you, you know, along that path. And seeing the built you know, Herbert Hoover doesn't get much credit. And I do think it's funny that some of the reviews think that this book is just like solely, I mean it is anti-capitalist, but they think the like examination of capital and capitalists is very like one-sided. And then I'm just looking at like Leland Stanford, who's a goof or whatever, but like (laughs) Herbert Hoover as president and as commerce secretary was very successful at using these finance mechanisms um, for some very important stuff. And so Roosevelt gets a lot of credit for the airplane industry, right? And for like switching over the factory uh, systems to build airplanes. And this is a like strong feet of government leadership, the opposite of for finance-led development or whatever. Uh, but Hoover, it was really Hoover is the one who triggered the air boom, right? There was no reason for the United States to be a leader in airplanes necessarily at that time. Uh, and it was Hoover who, like, and his cabal of associates, right? And, like, and finance capital on the East Coast uh, that piled into – airline stocks and says we're going to make this happen that this is a, a strategic importance and that it wasn't about government investment for him but was about uh, like government mediation in creating yep. the like the
2: associationalism is exactly like... the
1: opportunities for the for people to yeah. get along and make it happen and the Guggenheims played the central role uh including hiring uh Lindbergh to fly around and promote fly airplanes. Uh, and this seems like a, such a very contemporary move, right. Is like you get, and not, they not only got Lindbergh to do it, do it, but paid him in stock. Mm-hmm. And so th- that he becomes a, a promoter, a stock promoter for the airplane. Like, this is genius. Yeah. Like you can get the, the flight to pay for itself. And it, and this is very successful. This builds the airline, uh, like, their industry and of course with government contracts, they're giving mail contracts uh, very selectively to the, you know, the companies that they want to support. Hoover specifically is giving it to his friends Um, and they're developing the avionics industry. And, you know, they were developing the, like the, the federal government is still like building the apparatus that allows for the capitalist association to make these investments, whether that's mapping, um, like
2: mm-hmm.
1: scientific uh, research, instrument research, that they're all, yeah, the all these companies are going to
2: be. on. And all these groups are like exactly. supporting these efforts. Yep.
1: And they're all in the Department of Commerce where okay. Herbert Hoover has put them and where he's overseen them and where he's brought the interested parties in to come and decide these things, right, together. And so this was the model of finance associationalism that, and right. how it was supposed to work, right? And so they did, it wasn't just a like, a story that they told themselves about why they were getting rich and that they were just scamming people sort of like was for leland stanford um and the like railroad guys the original associationists but so like when this when wall street collapses when this all doesn't work right when that, when the great depression hits uh, and all the really which is really due to the profligacy of these financiers that hoover is yeah. trying to cool down that he's saying like come on guys if this is going to work like we all have to be They cool. never
2: listened to the poor guy you know and they didn't <laughs> listen to him they were and
1: it was fdr who has had just yeah. as much authority and sort of like presence to tell them to cool it
2: yeah, yeah.
1: and yeah. it all blows up and yeah. he's held responsible and so he feels really betrayed and also personally betrayed by like you know DuPont by Hearst by yeah, some of these yeah. like big capitalists who abandon him for Roosevelt, as if he wasn't like their guy, and uh, so he gets very, no, it's
2: very sad. Herbert's story is a very sad one, I think. You know? <laughs> I, I, I wrote about him too in my first book, and I'm I'm a huge so your your Herbert your Hoover chapter it was uh it was beautiful. I want to give the people who are watching like a little bit of sense of how your book moves, including kind of just walking through some of the history. And just giving, you know, sketching it out a bit, but I also I'm also picked up on another great thing. This kind of what what we were we were on the phone calling anti anti great man history, and so I mm. wanted to make sure to get this on the record. And then yeah. talk about settler stuff.
0: Now yes, that I'm we've cracked course. the seal on Herbert Hoover. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I think all of us are working on projects or have recently been working on projects where we are like delving pretty deeply into the like psychology of specific people where you've got herbert hoover i've got casey who i which continually refer to as my favorite monster uh and like i'm interested in like what his what his internal state is why he made these series of choices what his motivations are how you can see those motivations and like the things he writes and the policies he tries to pass um and i just wanted to for you to open the door for you to talk a little bit about writing a marxist history which has traditionally been sort of very systemic uh that pays so much attention to the specificities the personalities the traumas and like this then the historical specificity of in what another sort of written tradition might be called great man history
1: yeah that that is a great question uh because I've seen some people, you know, in some of the the like uh, reviews or something, some people have called it like history from below or referred to it that way because there are stories about workers organizing yeah. in there, um, which like you know that's an important historical tradition and a very valuable one. And I've read a bunch of those and incorporated their insights into this book, but that's not that's not the tradition this book is working in. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this is for me a history of capital relations. And so that means you're going to have a, a bunch of capitalists and you're going to have a bunch of workers, right? Um, and that doesn't, it's not a like exhaustive perspective. There are a lot of things that this book doesn't do, obviously, uh, even at sort of the max length. I tell people that Google Docs cut me off, which is true. Um, there's a there's a character limit on Google Docs. You uh, it. If I found it, it will, they'll cut you off. Uh, and to do that, I found that like someone like Herbert Hoover, I had to talk about a lot, and I wasn't. And I was. I found myself frustrated by that because I wasn't planning on it at all. No. Um, you know, I was planning. I wanted to like skip World War II as a like, haha, like see, you think I would talk about that, but I'm going to talk about something else. Uh, <laughs> also, did not work. Uh, because these things are, are very important from the perspective that I'm approaching the the topic from. I right? like and Herbert Hoover becomes important not just because he like personally makes a lot of relevant choices and is uh, the the like the guy who puts Palo Alto onto the national and global stage personally and like becomes a president and whatever. Uh, in his embodiment of these historical forces like, he encounters other historical forces, and that's what's so interesting for uh, for me is that, like, as an embodiment and avatar of capital, uh, he like personally encounters the historical phenomenon of class struggle as something like something in his life, right? So it's not like they are taking the minds, it's they're taking my minds. Uh, and he experiences not just like one uprising, but because his interests are so global. And because he has associates everywhere, every you know, the, the world anti-colonial movement, the world communist movement is personal for him. And then it becomes literally personal for him because they're also showing up at his personal doorstep, whether that's the Hoover Farm in California, which is a like a site of a like key uh, labor moment in the 30s and the farm uprisings in California at the Hoover Farm. Um, as well as the bonus march in at the White House, where he ends up opening up on these. You can watch the video. People should like look up the video of this stuff, which is crazy. Uh, on the bonus marchers, uh, which were some American soldiers, this is one we like learn in American history because it sort of closes the door on the Hoover story. Is that the during the Depression you have these American soldiers who march on the White House, asking to get their bonus payments that they're owed early uh, veterans from World War I. And Hoover sort of inexplicably, as far as the regular American history class is concerned, attacks them with the military, specifically MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur leads the military to attack these their own soldiers and burns their camp. And it's like brutal. Uh, and it you know seals Hoover's fate against FDR or whatever. But from his perspective, after seeing it in the context of these global uprisings, to me, it made a lot of sense, right? He was like, there they are, like here they're storming the Winter Palace, like they're poor, the poor soldiers are here, they're, they're communists, right? And so he interpreted things in terms of... Uh, these historical phenomena because he was himself the like avatar of all these historical phenomena. And so that's why I wanted to to understand him. And so his like his personal qualities are relevant. And I talk about their relevance um, because they're relevant to capital and to the forces that sort of pluck him out of history and put him in this big role and mm-hmm. then pluck him out just as fast, right? And, mm-hmm. and so he experiences it that way. Um, and not in not like history isn't a product of Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover is a product of history, mm-hmm. and we we see that too often where we think of like oh the the world we live in is Steve Jobs's world. Like Steve Jobs thought this way, mm-hmm. and so the world is that way. When really it's like Steve Jobs thought this way, and so that's how he got that job. Like he was performing a particular function to these historical forces, and so that's how I want to understand him. Um, yeah. What that does lead to, though, and that people, I think some may perceptive critics have said that, like, well, capital gets personified in these individuals, and then labor tends to sort of disappear into groups. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so capital becomes, you know, paradoxically more human than than labor, which has much more people, right? Uh, That's
0: really interesting, yeah.
1: And it's sort of true, but I don't think that's necessarily a, like, we shouldn't associate i don't think like being humanized in these kind of histories as like uh it's a tough one morally positive necessarily people are like oh he's really humanized and so i tried to like dehumanize the very human characters that we understand right and so someone like shockley or someone like hoover they're very important as individuals but their characteristics are so determined right and if they weren't there somebody else would have been right there instead of them and i think that's sort of like uh, doesn't make them seem more important. It makes them uh, contextual.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I want to give a sense like how you kick the book off historically, but I think before because the story of indigenous people comes up in your intro, you return to it at the end of the book. It's clearly like a really important issue. I think we should get that on the table before we th- do a little section hopping. But Miles, why don't you? Why don't you? You had a nice way of putting that. So hop on.
0: Well, this I'm gonna pull right from the uh, event that you did at UMD last week that I went to, um, where you talked about the anxiety of settlerism and the anxiety of the settler and anxiety of settler colonialism. And I wanted to ask you if you could talk a bit about the how this is an ongoing fact. This is an ongoing activity. This isn't something that happened and is now over and now we have to clean up the mess. It's like, no, it's a thing that is still occurring. Um, and so I wanted to know if you would, if you would just talk a little bit about sort of the persistence of settlerism, the persistence of the colonial agenda and sort of the persistence of that anxiety.
1: Yeah, uh, one, one place that's interesting to look at and maybe a place to start is the Stanford University land acknowledgement. And so people should like Google that because it's a very interesting web page. Because they acknowledge, you know, they acknowledge the Muwekma tribe, which is a politically constituted organization. Now I believe has 614 members, I believe, uh, all of whom have a genetic tie to remains that are millennia old in the Bay Area, right, who these are, uh, you know, tribal members of a tribe that Stanford acknowledges. Um, as the ancestral title holders, but not only do they acknowledge them, but the the page itself includes some rhetoric about how the rhetoric of land acknowledgements is insufficient and that we need to look at the return of land and land back, like quote unquote, and has like a link to like more information about returning land, which I think is is interesting uh, because it does speak to that anxiety, right? Of like, is one thing to acknowledge, but then you still feel anxious about the acknowledgement. And then you have to say like, oh, okay, well, I, I feel bad about that. Like it should be more than that. Uh, but then like they can't do the thing that is actually returning the land. Uh, and so they do everything else. Right. Which is like, they name stuff after things.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, that was they ch- they ch- so change often. names of things. They, yeah. uh, you know,
2: uh, we get stuck there. I mean, I think that shit's good. Change the name of things. They should
1: change the name of things. They should change but so that but then the question is, are you gonna change the name of Stanford University? And yeah. they're they're not going to, right? No. Yeah. Stanford, Leland Stanford, who is personally responsible for you know signing genocide checks, basically. Uh they're not gonna change take his name. It's not gonna be the Mwek Moralone University. Because then the Malak (laughs) Mahalani, you just say, okay, are we going to be in charge of the university? Yeah. Uh, And this is a a tribal organization that's still fighting for federal recognition, but does have recognition from Stanford University, which has returned remains uh, to the tribal organization, even though they don't have federal recognition. Mm. And what the feds say is, we recognize that you used to be a tribe. That you were a tribe, you know, in the 19th century, uh, and then in the beginning of the 20th century, you know, a group of people, you're keeping your traditions up, etc. and then like the Great Depression, World War II, what happened to you guys? Like we don't know, and then you pop up again in the 80s, and then we recognize you again in the 80s, uh, but we don't want to hear anything about uh, before this time or after this time. We only want evidence from this middle period that shows your tribal existence, you know, through the, a, a time of like national upheaval and a time when uh, natives in California were being Hispanicized, right? Were being treated as Chicano, Chicana, uh, Mexicans, uh, even though they lived in the same land for centuries, millennia, uh, yeah. whatever. And so then, and then, then it becomes a struggle to produce not just documents showing, okay, we were a tribe and we're a tribe, but this middle period of we had, we were a tribe at every moment through that period. So that's where the, the struggle uh, for the Mwakma Ohlone is going on right now. And it is, it's ongoing to this yeah. day, right? The, the powwow is uh, this coming weekend. And this organization will take part, right? It's recognized by the university. And so I start with the dispossession of the, the indigenous people of Alta California. And then I end with the continued dispossession of the indigenous people of Alta California and show that this the struggle for land, for sovereignty, for territory, has gone on throughout this history of the tech industry. And that you have like redevelopment that's going on in downtown San Jose in the eighties. That's being driven directly, not just driven by the tech industry, but being driven by Steve jobs, personally meeting with the mayor of San Jose saying, Oh, we're going to move our headquarters here, there, whatever. And the construction of that, uh, redevelopment in in that interest is digging up remains that then lead to struggle over this territory. Um, And that this is, needs to be written as part of the same history and into today as part of the same history. Um, So major effort of the book and I think a continuing effort uh, politically that I wanna continue to be involved in as a result of the book.
2: That's great, man. And um, so the first part, Start up. the first section starts in uh 1850. I mean, and you know, the, the, it covers 1850 to, to 1900. So, set the scene for the folks who haven't read it yet. What's the scene? What's the you know, the first shot?
1: So, you get the gold rush. Um, but the I try, I try and give the I mean, this is where all to California history starts generally with the gold rush. You point back to the Spanish missionary uh, period a little bit so that you like blame the death of indigenous people on the Spanish. You say so that when we showed up, we were just kicking out, you know, those other colonizers and there really there were like 12 of them. So it's fine. Um, And so I, I talk about Fremont's campaign and the conquest of California for the United States, which as a military campaign is extremely goofy. Uh, like the bear flag republic uh, stuff uh, is like super like real bunch of guys with some guns situation. And the reason that they're able to take this giant and very historically consequential territory is that Alta California was the furthest corner of the world as far as Western capital was concerned at this point that it was like, like, the colonization of Alta California by the Spanish was very coastal, very thin. The missions couldn't absorb that much indigenous labor, and so like they did kill a lot of people. Uh, you know, roughly half the indigenous population with disease, but there were still 150,000 indigenous people in California at the time of the you know the American takeover that constituted the bulk of the population, and then who still had a traditional relationship to the land for the most part. Hmm. Uh, and so you have to commit genocide. And a lot of this happens during uh, the Civil War. And we don't think of it as you know, sort of hidden historically by what else was going on in the country um, and written out of that period. Uh, but Leland Stanford, the railroad baron, who is the embodiment of capital in the West and really put out as this embodiment of capital in the West uh, by his associates who were more competent than he was and who recognized that like, being out in front at that time of history was maybe not the best idea, we um, were responsible for this, and then profited from it directly um, to, to tie it into our last question.
2: Beautiful. Miles, what are you thinking?
0: I think it's time to talk about horses.
1: <laughs> All right. The first uh, time, the beginning of Palo Alto. Uh, well, so to get to horses, though, you got, we have to start with the the railroad. So Leland Stanford is this embodiment of capital in the West uh, in the 1870s. And being the embodiment of capital anywhere in the 1870s is a high-risk job because uh, workers are all being proletarianized, and they're very angry. And the Working Men's Party, which was the like California affiliate of the first international uh was no exception, bunch of angry guys, uh, specifically angry, and they were a white group of guys were angry at Stanford and the other associates for bringing in Chinese laborers to complete the transcontinental, which affected their place in the labor market, um, which they understand correctly as affecting their place in the labor market. Hmm. And so they would organize outside Leland Stanford's house, which was on the top of Knob Hill, we call Knob Hill now in San Francisco, and yell at him and say we're gonna come get you and like come down or we're gonna get you, uh, and he was very like blasé because he was kind of a dumbass uh, about that threat. And he was like embody. There's this great scene that this journalist records where like the workers are outside the window shouting at him, and he Stanford is showing the journalist these vases that he got that used to belong to Marie Antoinette. You're like check out these check out these beautiful vases like aren't these cool and the journalist was like yeah man like i don't know though look at these Are historically you sure? resonant vases i know and he's like do you think they might be haunted speaking of like haunted and he writes about it he's like yeah i don't know you should like find something else to do with that or whatever um oh
0: man yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and it, it becomes, turns sad a little bit when his firstborn son dies in a very like sort of biblical <laughs> curse moment. his uh, yeah. uh, only child. Uh, but before that, uh, he has to do what a lot of rich people do when they live in the city and their workers like won't stop yelling at them, which is move his family to the suburbs. Um, except the suburbs in the 1870s don't exist yet, and so he has to create his own suburb to move his family to to escape the class tension that he has also created, uh, and that is the the origin of the town of Palo Alto, <laughs> which mm. is the suburb that he creates to move his family to. Uh, but what do you do in the suburb that you moved your family to? Leland Stanford sets about building the biggest and most excellent horse stock farm in the world. In Palo Alto. And this is a a subject that he'd been interested in before. And the stock farm is most famous, especially in science and technology studies, which maybe some people uh, in the audience might be from, uh, for yielding the photographs of Edward Muybridge, which are the first moving pictures, which lead to the technology of motion pictures. And so the Stanford horse breeding uh, whole complex is treated as like the thing that led to Moybridge's motion pictures and Stanford was sort of this like rich guy who funded those because he was frivolous. There's a story about how it was about gambling that they were he was betting whether all four hooves were off the ground at the same time. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't true. He was involved in a very important scientific project, which was improving scientific commercial project, scientific commercial national project, which was. Creating a better horse, mm-hmm. uh, and he was really into horse breeding and horse training. And horses at the time were very important. And the the, the transition to uh, coal-based energy hadn't really happened yet. Mm-hmm. And so you have horses are crucially important in transportation, in canals and streetcars. They're dragging stuff through the canals. They're dragging streetcars agricultural implements they're pulling uh, plows through the fields as a military they're pulling cannons and artillery and stuff it's like they were the engines of the country yeah e- for sure. even even in mines you know if they're like crushing for a quartz mine you're driving those by horses or mule um, and so they were the, the engines of the country and of the world and Leland Stanford uh, you know like a good disruptor says i know this is a millennia old technology the trotting horse you know horse carriages i'm going to reinvent it i can scale i can do things that no one else can do uh i'm going to create a new horse and he says you know there are well, he says there are 1.3 million horses uh, in the United States, or no, there are thirty. Sorry, there are thirty. I got to remember my numbers correctly. There are thirteen million horses in the United States. If I can improve them all uh, by a hundred dollars each in their value, that's worth one point three billion to the country. You know, mm-hmm. and this is classic like VC logic. is, yeah. You know, if you scale this out, if you you know look at the number, it goes. Everyone yeah, signs know? up for
0: the thing. we go If to I, the hockey stick. Yeah. if right,
1: I yeah. if every horse becomes a hundred dollars better. The country is going to be that much. And this was a major concern. There had been a, the great epizootic, which is a national horse influenza epidemic that kills 1% of American horses and incapacitates basically all of the horses. And wow. Boston, Boston burns down because the horses drag the fire engines and you can't have the fire engines, and people are oh. like dragging the streetcars. You know, streetcar operators are dragging the streetcars with their legs, and it's the, all the canals shut down, and it's a total catastrophe. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and it it doesn't end up being true that horses uh, are going to be very important into the twentieth century because they get replaced very quickly um, by steam right. power uh, for most of their like important functions. But Stanford succeeds in what they call the Palo Alto System, which is creating this new kind of horse. and they're taking inspiration from Germany, where they're doing early childhood education for the first time with these kindergartens. So he builds a kindergarten track, and he says instead of letting horses you know get older before we try and find out how fast the fastest ones are, we're going to race them as young as possible. And then we're going to invest a ton of money in the most successful ones. And then we're going to sell their genetic material. And so it's a very, you know, it doesn't matter that we're going to ruin a bunch of very expensive horses in the process because mm-hmm. of our scale and our uh, in- investment, we can afford to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they call the system, the Palo Alto system. And it's mm-hmm. v- immediately like very, very, very successful and produces some of the fastest, Uh, trotting horses in the world, the fastest, youngest trotting horses in the world, specifically.
0: Mm -hmm. We had a really good question from Twitter from someone whose name I did not write down, uh, which I should have, Um, but it was essentially a sort of, what does it mean for a city to give its name to a system? And in this case, it's really interesting because the system gets named after not the city yet. And sort of the city grows up in the shadow of Mm -hmm. the system itself. And so it's almost like the city is named after the system. Um, so what is it, like, I would love to talk a bit about like the power, like names have power, like the power of naming and how we, we are seeing the system and the city come up together in a very intertwined way.
1: Yeah. I was surprised when I was writing this. I mean, so that was the original, one of the earlier titles for the book, the prospective titles for the book, right, was the Palo Alto System, Mm -hmm. uh, which ended up sounding too, like, business-like, right, doesn't Mm -hmm. that sound like a VC book, and I thought that Mm -hmm. sounds, that was maybe, like, cool, like, aha, the Palo Alto System, you bought the wrong book, sucker, um, (laughs) I was surprised that it hadn't been used this way much throughout the literature, like the regional business literature, because it's this very like resonant uh, anecdote, like model that they use, and name that Charles Marvin and who is the lead trainer at the stock farm and Leland Stanford like come up with and use that speaks to so much of what goes on in this region and the regional like business ecosystem into the future. Uh, that people hadn't been using it this way in the past. And I think partly because it was like kind of obscure. And again, like Moybridge so dominates our understanding of Mm -hmm. those events, partly because he was really good at self branding and like Hmm. found a way to tell the story and make it about him like constantly. And there've been some good books about like, you know, so Rebecca Solnit's book about Mm -hmm. Moybridge is really good. They're like, it's kind of, there are more books about like Moybridge and Stanford than there and Moybridge period than there are about Stanford, even though he's yeah. a governor and senator and he like does all this important stuff. Like Moybridge is such an interesting historical figure that uh, he really dominates that period. And so people, even when people want to do like metaphorical jumps about Palo Alto from the 19th century or early 20th century to now or to the post war, they'll usually take that one because it's a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Palo Alto system, I think, is just like the best metaphor for the, the area, and speaks so much to the like impersonal injunctions and values that characterize the place and structure its history into the present. And so, like, when I read about the Palo Alto system, I was like, it was a moment of instant recognition in a sort of like chilly way. And like, and I've talked to yeah. other people from Palo Alto, people, young people who grew up there, who read about this story about them saying like, oh well, it's okay to work the young horses as fast as possible because if they break, then they were never really that good in the first place. And having young, you know, with the story of this high youth suicide rate that I start the the book yeah. with, uh, that that's creepy, that there's a resonant, mm-hmm. about haunting, right? That there, that's hugely resonant into the, the present. Um, but it's not that like people understood the Palo Alto system by that name and continued to use it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so like people unless they read this book have never heard of that even if they are very involved in palo alto region like it's not part of the official history and palo alto is somewhere that's got a really deep official history um for someone that's that like their whole history is very near or for a place that's got a very like you know, duration-wise in terms of American history, very short history compared to, you know, like Boston has a much longer history. Yeah, yeah. Than, uh, Alta California, Anglo-American Alta California, much shorter period of time. Uh, and yet it's got a very, like, closely written official history that capitalists have spent a fair amount of money, you know, funding. Mm-hmm. And so you can find they like, Bank of America is writing its own history books, uh, like, very early. So a lot of our history of Bank of America comes from Bank of America funded history into the present where like the recent book about uh, the Stuart Brand history that Markov wrote is like written in association with a group of guys who are involved uh, in the history that they're telling, you know, and so there becomes pretty well-defined official history and people just read the same books or read the same oral histories or listen to the same speeches and then ask the same guys what do you remember about that time and they'll tell you about the things that they remember from the book that they read about the thing that they did at the time mm-hmm. uh, and it creates this unfortunate loop and the palo alto system is not part of that uh official history but that's too mm-hmm. bad they should like they should work that in
0: there they really should it's so creepy <laughs> um so I
2: think we should keep walking forward through the book because there's so much great stuff. And I mean, two things, Malcolm. First of all, it's a beautifully written book. I re- And I really like it's written in a voice where it's just a wonderful example after example. It's really detailed in a great way. So there's no way we can do uh, justice to a 700 page book with all these great stories in in an hour. There's no way. But I do want to keep walking. I will keep an eye on the comments if people have you know, high quality comments, we'll turn to those. <laughs> and uh, and, um, and we'll, we'll turn to any questions folks have, if they have good ones. Uh, and
1: <laughs> I like that standard. Any totally. questions you got, as long as they're good. <laughs> yes, they're
0: good. There are, in fact, stupid questions. <laughs>
1: uh, and so like,
0: the, I love the
2: late 19th century stuff. It's great. I mean, it's just classic robber baron. I mean, you know, like you're not telling that kind of simplistic story, but, it, you know, it's this late 19th century industrialist stuff. The, the period from 1900 to 1945 I feel like in some ways this is the gap in my understanding in in sometimes in this history of like mm-hmm. old earlier uh there's you know I was thinking about Omara's history we could we could we could talk about how you related your book to other books that were around um but I was just wondering like what did you want to get across to people from this like you know 1900 to 1945 you covered there's raisin Ku, Ku Klux Klan and I IQ stuff this is where Herb Hoover comes in, of course. But then you, we get to tubes and I, so mm-hmm. I wonder like what kind of, you know, what kind of transformations are going on in this period that you think are really important for people to know about?
1: Yeah. The radio age is, is really important. And uh, in terms of the history of the technology, it's really important. So one of my, you know, side quest type goals for the book, I had a bunch of them, uh, But one was to get people, if they wanted to, they don't have, you don't have to do this stuff to read the book if you don't want to, but to actually understand the technical evolution of how you go from a light bulb style triode to a semiconductor based computer and what that technical progression looks like and how it's much shorter than you might imagine, right? That like a a semiconductor based transistor, a point contact transistor or whatever, uh, is a triode, which is created the same thing that they were building in the radio age uh, in Palo Alto, and it's built by Federal Telegraph, and that these things are not like metaphorically connected or whatever, but very directly connected, uh, and I think the the history, most of the histories of the area take a jump around there, right? Whether it's the beginning of the twentieth century or like the maybe they dip into the radio age a little bit, or they talk about Charles Lytton and the tubes a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, and the beginning of Hewlett Packard, sometimes they'll start with Hewlett Packard, you know, they get to the radio age, or they talk about Frederick Terman is very important, obviously, the radio age. Um, But for me, it was really important to tell that story all the way through in its global context, because that was the context that matters for me. Yeah. And so what's going on in those years is a like global struggle about the future of the world. And it's one that Palo Alto is very much tied up in. And so it's in that context that we can see these devices, right? Because they're building all these devices. And that's the, the official history is centers around these devices as if there's sort of some natural progression of these devices towards the devices that we have now. Yeah. yeah, And and we need to like read it, read it backwards through the progression, um, like evolutionarily or whatever. Uh, but if you do it through the anxieties of Herbert Hoover and his buddies in the beginning of the 20th century, you'll see that they had some real problems that the 20th century, that period for them was a very anxious one, especially between, you know, world war one, uh, and the, the end of the period that I'm talking about in the book. Um, where and in and through the post-colonial period that talk about is where they really have to act on their understanding of the world where the position of these guys you know some white engineer guys in california is threatened then this idea that they are going to continue to occupy this like vaunted perch on top of a world uh did not seem exceptionally plausible at a time when you've got a global communist movement that's on the march, you've got an anti-colonial movement that's on the march. Yeah. And from their perspective, you could the natural progression that's going on wasn't to the personal computer or whatever, it was towards communism and the liberation of all peoples and like world equality. Mm-hmm. That like, you know, the liberalism of the 18th and 19th century was being expanded to a world where everyone knew about each other. And that the extension of that was going to be the elimination of privilege based on nationality, privilege based on skin, uh, privilege based on you know, region. Uh, that seemed obvious to not just them, but to many people throughout the world. Right, This seemed to be the, the obvious uh, sequence of history and was for them a, a deeply threatening thing uh, and clearly the most important thing that was going on in the world. And so when you see them in that context, the devices that they end up coming up with make a lot more sense, mm-hmm. not just as some natural progression of uh, technology that humans figure out, you know, Prometheus to the And this is Silicon Valley loves to talk about itself that way. Right. That like, yeah. There's fire, there's the wheel. And then we came up with the computer, you know, it's just one more thing along the, the the natural line but it was a specific you know geopolitical historical project that they were involved in and you don't really understand the shape of it without understanding the shape of world politics of the period yep
2: um i want to get up to the 70s and 80s uh for a variety of reasons first of all you and Malls have to talk about the iran contra <laughs> thing That's right got stuff to do uh but i do want to kind of like you know the the 45 to 75 uh section i mean this is stuff so we have world we have world war 2 we have the cold war right and we have semiconductors and then we have like the personal what the chapter you call the personal revolution we have the hippies and you know that really it's still like you know there's the turner counterculture to cyberculture narrative you know another book that we could talk about but I wanted to say, like, when you're telling this story, which, if it comes to like history of Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, this is a story that's been told in a variety of ways. So, like, mm-hmm. what did you, Malcolm, want to do with this thing? You know, like, what was your what what was your angle on it that you wanted to give people?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I'm a communist. I'm uh, a Marxist, right? So I'm going to tell this history as ah. a history of class struggle, um, which is different than how most of the official histories are told, but not different from, you know, there's been a lot of very important work within, I think, the broad category of ethnic studies that takes a similar perspective. uh, And people, maybe people who aren't familiar with ethnic studies don't know that that's the methodology, mm-hmm. but that's a key part of the methodology. And so if you read a lot of the work that's been done in women's studies as well, um, uh, and ethnic studies, um, and black studies, if you want to be more specific, Chicano studies, uh, yeah. is looking at the, the history of capital versus labor within California and with sometimes within Palo Alto, very specifically, um, mm-hmm. labor history is a little like thinner, right? A little thinner on the West coast. There's definitely yeah. some of it. Um, obviously there's Mike Davis, um,
2: Lou Hyman's book has some temp, it has some good Mm -hmm. stuff on this, uh, on immigration and such. But yeah, I mean, like, go keep going. Oh, keep going with this thought.
1: And so, um, so I don't want to like suggest that mine is the only history of this area that like takes on this perspective of capital and labor, because it's just totally not true. There's a lot of very valuable stuff. But sort of the official like pop history. Is very like capital and capital, uh, sometimes capital yeah. versus capital, sometimes capital like capital, capital versus itself, or capital yeah, versus yeah. government for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, West Coast capital versus East Coast capital, yeah. which is I think is kind of a funny narrative that they like to tell about themselves. <laughs> um,
2: like crap, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and very important to some of those people, uh, yeah. which is I think kind of silly as malls is. Uh, <laughs> the, the the interconnection of the Wall Street and Silicon Valley is much tighter than they would have us believe. Um, A lot. <laughs> about that history, uh, but then also trying to contextualize it globally, right? Because California gets told sometimes within national history, within like mm-hmm. some East West progression, manifest yep. destiny, United States history. Uh, yep. But I think California, Alta California, is better understood. Uh, at least in the first decades, especially as an overseas colony of the United States. And it starts to make like different and I think a lot more sense from that perspective. And then you can see its history going on um, in those terms. And you can see its like uh, historical analogs, I think, a little clearer. It was interesting talking to like radio programs in Australia and New Zealand, it has been really in- an interesting experience of the promotion because their, their history lines up uh, so much, like their colonial history lines up so much with this history. And they say like, oh yeah, like we know, we know about Herbert Hoover. <laughs> We've met Herbert Hoover. He's like, he's part of our history too. And he is. And the same thing in South Africa, like Herbert Hoover is part of South African history. Um, so contextualizing it within the global 19th and 20th centuries um, was important for me. And I think has been useful. And people have commented that, it's helped them see different things about California and its role in like Pacific history and global yeah. history.
2: So I do want to talk about Iran-Contra at some point. But Malls mostly I want to k- just kick it over to you. What are you thinking now?
0: Uh, well, we can, we can drag Iran-Contra into here, uh, if that's what we want to talk about. Uh,
2: no, if you've got something else too, man, you should just do what you're thinking, whatever.
0: No, like let's let's jump let's jump to Iran Contra. Let's jump to Casey and his his weird laptop.
2: Yeah. Tell yeah. how is this a uh, Palo Alto story, Iran Contra?
1: Yeah, right. You don't think of Iran Contra as a Palo Alto story, um, but it really, 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 really is one. Um, so the the like front organization. That they really like run the project out of that Oliver North like uses as the proxy um, is called Stanford Technology Corp, which I think is is like really fantastic uh, embodiment of the moment historically because Stanford Technology, you know, in the eighties. Means something so totally different from what you would think you don't think iran contra at all when you think stanford technology in the 80s you think like the personal computer and this is where i talk about like the personal revolution right you think yeah. about like not big government but instead uh, the individual home and like small businesses and this is the story and like enthusiasts the internet of enthusiasts you know i love we're going to share grateful dead tapes uh, or like left-wing flyers or, you know, whatever. There are a lot of these. This is the, the official history. Um, but then when I was looking at the Iran-Contra story, partly through the, the, the Stanford Technology Corp. Uh, angle, it became clear the, the real role of Silicon Valley, this early sort of, or like, yeah, still early Silicon Valley industry was playing internationally and uh, as part of the cold war as a weapons contractor. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that if you watch like the movies from like the, the eighties about where they're doing like international intrigue, whatever, there is often some like technological MacGuffin uh, <laughs> that everyone is like looking for, like, Oh, we need the, we need the, like the intercept machine or we need the, like the radio, whatever. Um, And everyone's, you know, the Iranians are chasing around the Russians and everyone's, uh, you know, and oil money's involved and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That technology plays this important role in geopolitics. And so Stanford Technology Corp, the front organization, evolves out of a company um, run by this guy who's a sales agent for Hewlett Packard in Iran um, out of Switzerland, And what you do if you're a sales agent for Hewlett-Packard out of Iran, your job is to know who to bribe within the military uh, so that they buy your, like, signals equipment, which you can, and your second job is to know how to evade export restrictions on those signals equipment so that you can, you know, send them out of the country as a scrap of tech parts and then reassemble them into a weapon on the other side that they can use for signals intercepts, for missile technologies, because missiles are are chips, uh, radio intercepts are chips. You know, everything that they're using right now is coming out. The parts are coming out of Silicon Valley, yeah. uh, and so Palo Alto itself becomes like a center of world-like spycraft. And there's all sorts of like crazy corporate and international espionage going on in Palo Alto. Um, but the government uses this this Stanford Technology Corp as the the front for Iran Contra, and one of the um, the tools that they're actually using to run this scheme is the first laptop, and the first laptop was invented, you know. Uh, gonna be bad because the company gets bought by tandy and so i can't remember what the original company's <laughs> name was that does the first laptop it's bad i need to reread my own book um but it's this very expensive you know it's like if you watch a movie from the 80s the super expensive laptop you open with like the orange tiny little screen with the orange characters or whatever um and they were extremely expensive mm-hmm. and they were supposed to be for like you know senior executives, but basically no one found any particular use for it. Senior executives yeah. didn't use computers. Senior executives used tape recorders and then gave them to their secretaries, you know, into the nineties still, you know, male professionals are still, uh, that's their relationship that. yeah, exactly. to typewriters, whatever. <laughs> We're not doing- yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. Voice assistants, right? The original yeah. voice assistant any uh, computers, but who did love them? Were was the NSA was, uh, and the National Security Council, and specifically Oliver North, and so he goes in, he grabs like a rack of these laptops that the government had had upgraded with encryption chips, and he hands them out to the goons who are running this, you know, weapons dealing network scheme. Uh, on behalf of the federal government, if not with the fully informed knowledge of the federal government. Uh, maybe you found a smoking gun malls that uh, <laughs> shows who knows what where. I think we we established that Reagan re- didn't really know what was going on because they insulated him and it didn't really matter that he if he knew what was going on, but that everyone else knew more or less what was going on.
0: Persico, who is Casey's biographer, has a really interesting talking about like psychoanalyzing your subjects theory about sort of why all this goes down the way it does this whole story is really interesting to me because bill casey was very interested in technology it was a super high tech like he comes out of oss in world war ii and is like we need to commercialize all this technology we've just developed in world war ii and that's sort of how he gets into venture Um, is coming out of out of spycraft out of the oss and is like we're going to we have to file all these patents we have to like start selling this technology and that's where he sort of makes his next pile of money is in doing what we would now call venture investment following world war ii and then of course he has his business publishing empire and persico's theory of casey and iran contra is that after oss After World War II, Casey just wants to get back into spycraft. He just wants to be a spy. This is his, this is, he had the best time. He thought this was the best thing in the world. He really just wants to do this with his life. But he is a Catholic from like Brooklyn who did not go to Yale. And he went to like night school for his law degree. And... So he, and he has all of this finance, like finance, and he's a he's a financial lawyer, he's a tax lawyer, he's publishing on tax, tax law and like estate planning. And so he's constantly getting pushed into these very high level financial appointee roles, which he doesn't want, but which he does a good job at anyway, which this is the weirdest thing about him is that he's like constantly doing the best job he can in his government position. So like in one case, he's in the SEC. He passes a set of rules. He like writes a set of rules for like secondary placement of privately placed securities. He's very proud of these rules. He gets out of the SEC, immediately starts working to, to change those rules because they yeah. affect him now badly as an investor. But at the time at the SEC, he was like, this is what the SEC needs. So this is what we're going to do. It's wild. And so Persico's theory is that At the end of this long thing, when he's finally like placed in the right position in the Reagan campaign, so he gets the CIA appointment, by the time he gets there, the Yaleys who are in the administration, they hate him. They think he's an interloper. They can't understand a goddamn word he says because he had a speech impediment his entire life. And the only person who could really understand him was his secretary, who he had the whole time. And so Bush pulls so much of the intelligence apparatus into the vice president's office. And they sort of leave Casey with this hollowed out entity where he doesn't have anything to do. Like they've stripped, <laughs> like he just has no resources. He has no money, he has nothing. And so Persico's theory was that he sort of gins up Iran-Contra to do something that feels like spy work. Oh. Like that—that's what he did, and I'm like, that is a wild theory, sir. Oh And also, kind of makes sense. Well,
1: um, and Martin Anderson says he has because he has brain cancer. Is it? And Casey? he
0: conveniently and, dies of brain cancer right before he's supposed to testify before Congress about it all. So
1: that's Martin Anderson's like, look, uh, Casey had brain cancer. And like no one else wanted to say no to his idea. Like no one, like no one felt like no one had a better idea. And so we okay, went so, with like the I, the brain cancer idea, and that was our Iran. This is a
2: hilarious yeah. movie. Someone should make. I mean, it might <clears throat> be the brain cancer part obviously. No, it like- does
1: seem like a like a. <laughs> Cohen brothers kind of situation exactly. yeah. for sure yeah. um it's a very it, after reading thing but it is like that a lot of these guys were tech guys like uh yeah. Oliver Norris was very was very like tech guy as well Martin Anderson was very tech guy mm-hmm. um yeah
0: Casey was like, very attached to the idea of high technology being the forefront of the new American imperialism he this was like a thing he talked about all the time from when he was doing investment to when he was doing stuff for like the sec and export import and when he was in the cia he would constantly give speeches that positioned both technology and finance as these are the people who are the new front line um he actually has a whole speech that he gives at one point it's actually a commencement it's address. Pathetic, isn't it yeah it's That's wild it's like <laughs> it's this commencement address that he gives where he's like you guys like as you go into business you will be the new front lines of the american Mm -hmm. he doesn't say empire but like the american project um and then he gives a speech to a group of venture capitalists before he gets involved with the thing that i care about where he's he literally calls them the they're this they're the the front lines they are the scouts who go out and find like Mm. into enemy territory and he says you can you could you could find you, something along the lines of like you could find the treasure first or you could get shot down first like <laughs> it's insane like it's wild how attached he is to this collision of technology finance and militarism um, mm-hmm. That that's like a huge part of how he thinks about things well
1: it's- and it's amazing the role that these laptops in particular play in terms of like enabling you to run a shadow government with 10 mm-hmm. dudes scattered throughout strategic places in the world, that if you don't have those encrypted laptops, then you need a signal system, then you need the army. And then mm-hmm. you've destroyed your own plausible deniability about the government. Yeah, And so it's the laptops as a like technological leap that allows these guys to sort of do their own thing with government uh, resources and government power and, Mm -hmm. you know, pursue their agenda for America throughout the world. And it really is throughout the world because like Iran-Contra is sort of a misnomer, right? Those are like two nodes in a network that also includes Afghanistan, that includes Angola, that includes like a bunch of other places that they're shifting money and weapons to. That includes Saudi Arabia, that includes Brunei, that includes, you know, the Medellin cartel, that includes taiwan in particular like you can get a better sense of these networks from again watching like random 80s like comedy thrillers mm-hmm. where they're just like making up
0: bad guys or whatever who's the terrorist of the week yeah yeah
1: like like because our understanding of it now is so blinkered just mm-hmm. like by this name iran contra and it's like we you know like there's some drugs there's some missiles there were the contras yeah. three-way trade it was wacky and it's like no no they were running a shadow government for the world mm-hmm. with 10 laptops. Yeah. Like that's the story, right? And that's the story of Silicon Valley, right? Not the Grateful Dead bulletin board, uh, but the Iran Contra net that was running a shadow government out of the. And so when we look at stuff now, when you look at Teal and Anduril, you look at uh, Ellison and Oracle, you look at some of these like creepy tech military even like schmidt at google right and you look at their associations with the government and with uh the national security industry uh it's got a long proud history right and like ellison i don't know if you get into ampex uh in the venture capital stuff right but like Ellison comes right out of Ampex and Ampex is set up by spies at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are spies are there at the beginning of Silicon Valley setting drapers, you know, a general, you know, a lot of these people are associated with the OSS with, with what becomes the CIA Oracle Mm -hmm. is a CIA contractor from the beginning Uh, associations with the office of Naval research as a way to like get around democratic oversight of, these inventions. It was like, they, you know, Vannevar Bush did not want the government to end up with the patents to the stuff that these universities figured out. And the way to avoid that was doing it through the military industrial complex. Uh, And so that's when we understand that, it's easier to understand the present of Silicon Valley. And now that they're going for prime military contracts, which is a change, it's Mm -hmm. an important change. And it's something that we should like know and know the history of, but it's not like, Oh, Silicon Valley just heard about defense. Like that's ridiculous. That's like, watch a movie in the eighties, like see (laughs) who that they're talking about.
2: So there's two questions I want to try to get in before we wrap up in 10 minutes. The first one, the one I most want to get in comes from, uh, Alice Fox, who just got her doctorate here at Virginia Tech yesterday, uh, we're very proud of her. She's so great. And irony of irony, she's going. She landed. She's landed a gig at uh, Stanford. No,
1: yeah.
2: um, she's she's interested in this topic. And um, so her question is. Uh, are there any opportunities to reconfigure and this is Malcolm, this is a question about how you're thinking about history here is how I understand it. Are there any opportunities to reconfigure the vision of the future? Silicon Valley, uh, has been, you know, and continues pursuing to manifest or are we in a salt the earth and learn from our mistakes mode? So, I mean, I think this is like, what do you think about the future of Silicon Valley? What are your hopes and what are you thinking?
1: Um, Well, I think that the salting of the earth was uh, accomplished in the 20th century. Like, that's what we need to undo. And I mean that, like, metaphorically, but also literally, like, when they emptied the aquifers of the Bay Area, they started leaching in salt water from the Bay.
0: Hmm.
1: And so you have the environmental destruction of capitalist occupation of Alta California. I mean, obviously, from the beginning, the gold mining period, but you know in the 20th century to a, a huge degree and you still have a huge number of superfund sites and pollution yeah. um in the area and so i think we're sort of faced with the opposite situation where we've got people who are like who have salted the earth right and salted the earth uh in terms of spoiling the environment salted the earth in terms of like the housing situation right like i've got a uh, People who have been fighting for just like low-income senior housing in Palo Alto yeah. like trying to like save some places where the people who made the good parts of Palo Alto good could possibly like live out their days mm-hmm. in the city limits and that one's just like fuck you like get out of here um, yeah. and like so like we've got a we, we've got a bad situation right we're in a moment of crisis and so if we're going to learn from Stanford or from Palo Alto I don't think it's going to come from the client the John Dorr climate school of Stanford University presented by Exxon or whatever like I don't think they're going to come up with the answers to the problems that they have created so if that means uh salt the earth then then so be it i guess
2: um we do have time for questions so we'll keep an eye on that and the other one you know mal and we you know we can go anywhere but Mal's and i were talking about it earlier it was just like um you know like since your book came out i don't know when you finished like you know putting writing and you were like wrapped it but they well you know like a lot of air has come out of the bubble of the last decade mm-hmm. like there's been a lot so yeah just how have you been thinking about that stuff in the context of this book you read and you know if you were going to do like updated or whatever to imagine well I,
1: I probably will for the for the paperback i guess Yeah. why not uh, yeah. so i'll probably do an intro um where i talk about all the things that happened since because it's a lot yeah. already um but it does make me glad that i didn't end the book on crypto or something you know because i think that's a real problem with silicon valley histories is that they're very presentist
2: yeah yeah totally
1: and like like focused presentist like it's whatever the big thing in silicon valley is like that month when you're you're finishing your book
2: poorly for that reason you know it just looks so silly well and they
1: do it means that it's got a like limited shelf life. And yep. so I tried not to do that. I tried to focus on what I, what struck me as we're going to be the important things looking forward. And so I look at like nationalist tech. I look at like efforts to uh, repress Chinese technology um, Yeah. in the like yeah, yeah, last yeah. chapter, like that for me looking forward, like that's what matters. Right. Or like Anduril's like border technology, like that's going to yep. be way more important to me certainly than crypto, definitely then like AI, whatever. And so I'm trying to like give an analysis that allows me to pick out what in the present moment is actually going to be important 20 years down the line. And I think it's almost nothing that we talk about on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, this is
2: my this is what I take away from studying history and reading old newspapers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> certainly. about all this shit that doesn't matter at all. You know, what I mean, like that's well, and, that and it's the
1: same it thing. That's what's yeah. so crazy is it's not they're not even they don't even come up with new things to pay attention to that are wrong, right? It's just like still cybernetics. It's just cybernetics over and over again. It's Like what if the computer did all the work? Uh, yeah. And they like dream about it in different ways every well, couple of decades, I guess. But like I have
2: a piece on chat GPT coming out soon, uh and in a magazine. It's just like it's been so intense. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: just really? wish we could get a little like it just extend the memory for just like this long. <laughs> so it's like, all right, like who got the crypto stuff right? Like let's ask them what they think about the AI stuff. And if you got the crypto stuff wrong or you got the metaverse stuff wrong, and if you were like really hyped about that. That like just let's not ask you about
0: the
2: guys still doing their shtick like they just did it 10 years ago or whatever with other ai uh Miles, what are you thinking right now man what's what are you yeah we got a couple minutes left
0: i mean literally what i'm thinking is i also have a piece that i have to put together on ai and like i keep looking at it and then thinking like look when the discourse gets past the chinese room someone come get me <laughs> yeah, then right? i will then i will engage but like It's stuck in this stuff that I remember from like the undergraduate class I took in the philosophy of AI. And I'm like, are we at being a bat yet? Are we at on being a bat? If we're not at on being a bat, then I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Well, and it's such an anti intellectual culture for, and it's like strategically anti intellectual. Uh, So that I love the like Sam Bankman Fried, like, don't read books because like books are lame, (laughs) like books are slow. but it helps them sell stuff, right? Like if you know too much about what you're selling, it becomes, and like the history of it, it becomes harder to sell. Yeah. And so they like, you know, if you want to be a AI influencer or whatever, then you have to forget about how you were a total fraud two weeks ago talking about Mm -hmm. crypto metaverse bullshit. And you have to be sort of like shameless and like goldfish memory about it. And like the industry needs that. And so like, no one knows what Sam Altman did. Like no one can give me his resume and say why he's like, Yeah. why we should listen to what he's saying or trust what he's saying. It's like, and I can give his resume. Like I know what his history is. He like dropped out of Stanford and started looped, which got crushed by Foursquare, and he mm-hmm. failed up into Y Combinator where he, yeah. you know, succeeded by investing other people's money in Stripe, which again, still has not made any money. And that was the basis for him being, you know, Wonder Boy to lead us into the like brand new era of AI and like artificial, AI, artificial intelligence, ridiculous. (laughs) Why don't they figure out some regular intelligence and then we can get to (laughs) that.
2: I know, I know. And uh, this is why, you know, I'm really looking forward to uh, Maul's book because, um, I think it's really important to bring together the story you've been telling Malcolm with like the history, you know, like Fed policy, interest rates, and then the story Malles is telling about the rise of venture capital, you know, that you covered too. Well, this has been like as fun as I thought it would. I know we could go on for like 3 or 4, yeah, more, four more hours. i more hours sure. batting an eyelash, but um this has been so great, guys. Thank you for doing
1: it. Thank you so much for uh for hanging out with me for
2: you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I wanna thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I wanna thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other peoples and things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia tech publishing and supported by the center for humanities and the university libraries at Virginia tech for information about other podcasts from Virginia tech publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu for the entire peoples and things team. I am Lee Vinsel and most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.